Welcome to the Essential Geopolitics Podcast from Stratfor, a rain company. I'm Emily Donahue. Today I'm speaking with Stratfor Senior Analyst for Global Economics, Michael Monderer. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Emily. So, Michael, we're in the last quarter of an economically eventful year, with markets and economies slowed in large part by COVID-19. Now there are new lockdowns and anticipated negative economic impacts. You've recently written that China looks to be the only country that may actually have economic growth this year. Can you tell me more about what's going on with the global economy? Sure. Um, well, we are in a new era, um, a coronavirus era. Um, it has not passed, as you, as you notice. As you note, the, uh, there's been a resurgence both in Europe and in the U.S. What we're looking at for the future is a global economy that needs to become accustomed to slow growth, but with rather low inflation and one in which there's high debt. The, um, the International Monetary Fund is projecting that the global economy at the end of this year will be about 4.5% smaller than it was at the end of 2019. And as you say, there will be declines in all major economies except for China, which will be the only one to have any positive growth this year. And even then, China's growth will only be about 1% or 2% which is much less than it has been in the past. Um, in the U.S., we're seeing positive growth after two quarters of decline. We expect that the third quarter growth rate will be, will be rather large. Um, but even so, the U.S. growth will be down by about 4% for the year. And in Europe, where there's been a resurgence, we expect to see even larger declines. And as we will in Japan, even though the virus has not come back there, What's been supporting growth for the global economy basically has been stimulus of around $12 trillion, which is, of course, more than the combined GDP of Japan, Germany, and France. But the effect is that there will be fiscal deficits of about 17% of GDP across countries in the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, and the public debt-to-GDP ratio will increase to something like 140% of GDP. Michael, it seems like several economies and governments have relied on spending to prompt growth during this crisis, but won't large government spending and higher debts lead to inflation? Well, as you said, there's been about $12 trillion in additional spending. And under normal circumstances, you would expect that would cause inflation, but it's not really ringing alarm bells right now. Um, central banks are helping to finance that. They've created something like $3.7 trillion in new reserves that are being used to buy government debt and corporate bonds. And also remember, too, that inflation is jointly determined by demand and supply. Um, demand is recovering as economies reopen from lockdowns, but it's still being affected by a resurgence of the virus. And we've learned that consumers actually prefer to save and businesses are not investing so far in this cycle. Regarding the supply side, um, it's, inflation is being kept in check by issues that have most economies that are producing at well below capacity. So you don't have the usual interaction of supply and demand that would drive prices up. And inflation is really tomorrow's problem as the world addresses first the public health crisis and then an income crisis. So for now, what we have seen is a, an inverse relationship between economic growth, in, that is employment, 
and inflation seems to have broken down. So what is different about China in this economic forecast? Well, China was the first major country to experience the COVID-19 crisis, and it also has been the first basically to exit. Um, staying away from political questions about whether or not China is responsible and whether it infected the world. Um, it's lockdown early this year, mainly in the first quarter, was extremely stringent, something that couldn't really happen in a democratic society. And that's a D with a democratic with a small D. Once the virus was being controlled, the resumption of economic activity was carefully managed in China with reopening of manufacturing under very controlled circumstances. The uh, services sectors have been much slower to come back. And for a long time, the recovery in China was basically supply-driven with industrial production and infrastructure investment dominating. That's sort of a traditional Chinese response that is funding public investment um, which in the past has, of course, led to debt problems that China will have to address in the future. For now, the recovery is still uneven, but it seems to be more balanced with retail sales picking up, although they will still be negative for the year, and it's unclear if private investment is recovering. Um, I should add that we've never had a lot of confidence in the accuracy of Chinese economic data. Um, for the first time in many years, China did not set a growth target for this year. And in the past, growth targets have basically become inputs to the process where local and regional governments step up their spending solely so they can meet the GDP target. Um, China is now considering how it can monitor the quality of its growth and to make sure that whatever growth it has increases capacity and productivity. And we're watching a central committee meeting that has been taking place in, in Beijing and results of which won't be known for a while to see if it includes growth targets in the next five-year plan that will be announced and take effect next year. What does all this mean for both the Chinese currency and the U.S. dollar? Well, certainly use of the Chinese renminbi um, has increased, but according to the Bank for International Settlements, it still accounts for only about 4% of global currency transactions whereas China accounts for 12% of global trade. Um, in contrast, the U.S. dollar is on one side of at least 88% of all foreign exchange transactions. What it means is that the renminbi has basically become a transaction currency, and unlike the dollar, is not a stable store of value. Um, you can relate that basically to the inability of investors to move money freely in and out of China, something that's being addressed only incrementally by the government. And until Beijing opens tr financial transactions and allows unfettered access to its domestic markets, which includes recognizing property rights, plus allows the currency to float in a way that reflects market forces, the RMB will probably remain a second, if not a third-tier currency. Great insight there, Michael. Thank you so much. Thank you, Emily. I look forward to talking to you again. You can read Michael Munderer's economic analysis and Stratfor's quarterly and annual forecast with a subscription to Stratfor Worldview. Check out the special price for podcast listeners at stratfor.com slash podcast offer. That's S-T-R-A-T-F-O-R dot com slash podcast offer. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.